All right. Well, uh, fundamentally, when everything's boiled down, Christianity is really just about growing up to be like Jesus. That's really all it is. It's not complicated. It's not a set of crazy things that we have to do or hoops we have to jump through. The Christian life is believing in Jesus for what he's done for us. And as we do so, the spirit of God works in our lives and makes us more and more like Christ. We see that throughout the the New Testament. We see that concept taught in a number of places, but one clear place it's taught is Ephesians 4, 13 through 15, which tells us that we are uh, to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be tossed, uh, children tossed to and fro by the waves or carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so as the apostle Paul there teaches us, the foundational issues of Christianity is about growing up to be like Jesus. It's like as we have kids or were kids and we compare our, our height to our, to our parents, as we grow older and older, we get closer and closer and my kids are gonna well eclipse me, I'm sure, in height and God bless them for that. Um, but it's, uh, it's just, that's how we measure things. We measure our spiritual growth, not by how we compare to one another, how we compare to Jesus is how we measure our spiritual growth. And I say all that to say that in in the book of Acts, here in our passage, we are going to meet a man named Stephen, who we briefly met last week, uh, at least his name was mentioned in the passage just before the passage today. But we see this man named Stephen, and we were introduced to him as a a man who was a Hellenist, meaning he was a Greek-speaking Jewish man living in uh, Judea, perhaps Jerusalem itself, Uh, He was chosen as one of the seven deacons of the church in the early church to help distribute the material needs to the widows. And, but today we get to see more of Stephen. We get to learn more about this man uh, who doesn't have a very long trajectory in the scriptures, but one that's profoundly important. And, And in some sense, I think the best thing we can glean from Stephen's life Uh, is that he really did resemble Jesus in some profoundly important ways. That's not to say that he is Jesus, because he's not. He was a sinful man like you and me and all of us. But he he was growing rapidly um, by the Spirit of God's work in his life, and he resembled Jesus in some beautiful ways. And so what we're going to see today is some clear overlap between the life of Stephen and the life of Christ, the teaching of Stephen and the teachings of Christ, and then the death of Stephen and the death of Christ. So that's kind of our trajectory today in this passage. Um, So if you want to jump in with me to verse 8 of chapter 6, we'll read down to verse 15 and then uh, talk about what we're seeing there. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So here, here we're seeing this snapshot in Stephen's life. And it's, um, it, it's a moment where he's got this confrontation between him and some of the members of his synagogue. Synagogue would have been a Jewish local church, more or less. That's kind of the concept. They would have been a localized group of Jewish devout people gathering together weekly. And, and there was evidently, um, clearly from the passage, a dispute that rose up between Stephen and some of the members of this synagogue. This synagogue was made up of people that, it was called the synagogue of the freedmen. So it was probably a group of formerly enslaved people now, now freed, got their freedom back, and they've now brought, brought themselves into this particular synagogue. There are also Cyrenians and Alexandrians. So here we have Greeks coming in who are, who are Jewish, devout Jewish people moving into Israel. And as we saw last week, that was happening. You had the Hellenist uh, Jews coming into Israel um, out of other nations. And so this was clearly uh, a Gentile or Greek converting to Judaism synagogue, which Stephen would have been a part of. He was a part of this group of people. And now they have a problem with Stephen. And the problem is, is that ultimately he's teaching things that don't make sense to them, that they can't wrap their heads around. And that is, he's teaching that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of their hopes. And, and they, they can't seem to grasp this. And so they're disputing with him, but they can't actually beat him in the logical arguments. They, it says in verse 10 that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So there's, there's a fight happening or there's, a, there's debates happening, but Stephen is winning the debates. And people, as we've seen already through Acts, people are running to Jesus in, in droves by the thousands and Stephen is a part of this in his own particular slice of the community of Israel. And so this stirs up some people that decide to do something about this. They decide to instigate this, this whole thing with the, the elders of Israel. And they bring men who accuse him of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then they bring up false witnesses who say that he's saying that Jesus is going to destroy all of this. And, and uh, ultimately, this is a snapshot in time of Stephen's life that looks a whole lot like Jesus's life. Jesus's message did not land well on his hearers either. Jesus's message led to the accusations of blasphemy, which now in as we look at it, is laughable because how can God blaspheme himself, right? Jesus is God, and so he can't be a blasphemer. They misunderstood Jesus, and they were angry. And so you saw this throughout all of Jesus's life, these false accusations, these people being stirred up. The, there were multiple times throughout Jesus's life where he had to disappear before they could kill him prior to the time of his, his crucifixion. 
Jesus and, and, and uh, Stephen have this very common life, at least in this moment, as Stephen is engaged in gospel work, proclaiming the truth of Christ. And, and they, the people around him are angry about it and misunderstanding of it. And so what do they do? They drag him before the council of elders. Now, this is the third time in the book of Acts we've seen this council of elders. The first time was back in, I think, chapter two, uh, or chapter three, where Peter and John uh, are brought before this group and threatened and told, stop doing these things, stop talking about Jesus, and you need to be quiet. And they refuse to listen to that, right? And then in chapter uh, five, we see that the, the whole 12 apostles, all 12 of them, are ultimately arrested and brought before this council. They are threatened and they're beaten. So now the, there's an escalation of things happening. There's first just threats and attempts to silence. Now there's physical violence and more threats. And now we see Stephen as the third wave of, of persecution uh, before the elders of Israel. So get, let's get into chapter seven here. And, and it's a long chapter. It's about 60 verses. So we're going to have to go a little rapid fire through it. Um, but but we'll, we'll look at what he what he says and how this, this meeting with the council of elders goes. It says, verse one, the high priest said, are these things so? So the accusations, remember, are he's blaspheming and he's saying that Jesus is gonna destroy all of this and those are the two main accusations. And so the high priest doing what he should be doing, at least, is giving Stephen the opportunity to speak and defend himself. So what, is, what does Stephen do? Look at verse two. We're gonna read, uh, this is the, the longest speech or sermon that, has, that is recorded in the book of Acts. It's long. It's longer than any of Peter's. It's longer than any of Paul's that we'll see later on. It's a long speech. And uh, on first blush or first glance, it's going to seem like Peter or Stephen rather is just reciting Old Testament history to us but I want us to read this through the, through the right lens, the understanding that he's using these particular stories of Old Testament history to make his point. And, and he's going to be preaching through the misplaced hopes of the people of Israel in those days. The things that they were clinging to when they should have been clinging to Jesus. And there's three things that he's gonna draw out of here. I'll just give them to you up front so we can see them as we go through it. The first is the land. He's going to specifically address the issue of the land of Israel with these leaders. And, and then he's going to deal with Moses specifically. And then he's going to deal with the temple specifically. Okay, so those are the three things he's going to tackle in this. And, and really, he's just trying to demolish all of the false hopes that the people of Israel have at this time at least, and perhaps still today. Um, but, but this is a helpful way to understand the fulfillment of Jesus of these things. And, and so we'll walk through each of them, um, but, but I just want, just want us to think about what Stephen's doing here. He's doing something intentional. One commentator explained that what he's doing is he's, he's slaughtering sacred cows. That's what he's doing. He's taking these things that they have propped up as vital and saying, no, those are not the vital things. Jesus is. Okay, so let's get into it. Uh, misplaced hope number one is the land. Look at verse uh, two through 16. It says, and Stephen said, 
Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now here's a key verse, verse five. Yet he gave him, Abraham, no inheritance in it, in the land, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in, this, in a land belonging to others and would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and all our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died and he, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver, from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Okay, so all of that is a, is a summary in 16 or so verses of Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50. Okay, so real quick summation of the second, well, really two-thirds of the book of Genesis. And, and here we see Stephen addressing the first misplaced hope, and that is this, this hope that they had in the land, specifically that, that land. But what is, Peter, what is Stephen's point? I'm going to keep saying Peter because he's, he's been the guy for most of this. What is Stephen's point? It is that Abraham, as the father of the nation, did not actually possess even a foot's length of this land, and yet God was blessing him. So the blessing of God is not linked specifically to this land. Now the land plays a role. It's an important, very important part of Israel's history. It matters to, their, to them as a nation. God gave them that land as a, as a way of displaying his, his provision and his, abil- and his desire for them to rest in him, right? He didn't leave his people wandering forever. He gave them a place of rest in the land. And that land had a, had a value for sure, but it's not the hope. It's not the ultimate hope. Jesus is the ultimate hope. The blessing of God comes through Abraham's descendants who ultimately culminate in Jesus. The promised land really is a shadow of Christ who is the substance, 
Right? We talk about this all the time. We say shadow and substance because that's what the Old Testament is. It's, it's shadows of the reality. This is biblical language. This is Hebrews chapter nine and 10, that there are shadows that the Old Testament points to the substance of Christ. And the land is a shadow of Christ who would be for us our ultimate rest and joy. That's what the land represented in the Old Testament. It was, it was leading them out of their, their wanderings into a place of their own. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament picks up on this in chapter four, where he says this in eight through 11, he writes, if Joshua had given them rest, so in other words, had given them entry into this land, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a rest for the people of God. And whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The writer of Hebrews is dealing with this issue of rest and he's tying it to the land. We know he's tying it to the issue of the land because he talks about Joshua, who was the guy who brought them into the land, right? And so, so here we see that there's, there's ultimately something bigger, more important ahead of us that the land points to. The land points to rest, but Jesus is our rest, which we will fully experience in the second coming as he establishes his kingdom. We have a future rest, that is through Christ. And that's, that's vital. And we could talk way more about this issue, but we've got to keep working through the passage. So the first misplaced hope that uh, Stephen brings to us is this hope of land that is not as vital as they think it is. Number two, we get to Moses. Now remember, Moses is one of the key disputes, issues of dispute between Stephen and his, his synagogue. They said, they accused him of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so now Stephen gets to address that issue as well. Look at verse 17 through 43. It's quite a long section, so hang in there with me as we read it. It says, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that, the, that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them, as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? 
Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when he was 40 years, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. The man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This Moses, here's the key verse. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led them out of the land of Egypt, we do not know uh, what led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim, and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Okay, so long section there. But what is, what is Stephen getting at here? He's dealing with Moses, right? He's, uh, he's unpacking this whole Moses narrative, this whole story from Exodus really through to Deuteronomy, um, this whole story of Moses. And Moses was a really big deal to the Israelites, particularly in the time of Jesus and the beginning of Acts. He was elevated to, to a point of veneration, almost to a point of worship. Not quite, right? But almost. That's why they're accusing him of blasphemous words against Moses. Oh yeah, and God, right? Like, well, that's weird. Wouldn't it be blasphemous against God and maybe Moses as God's servant? But no, they reverse that. It's Moses and God that they accuse him of being blasphemous of. Moses first, then God. But, but here's the point that, that Stephen draws out from this text. In just unpacking the story, he specifically points out that Moses himself said that there would be a prophet brought up from among them that is better than him. And that's Jesus, right? Like we know that's Jesus. He's trying to make this point that it's not about Moses. It's about Christ who fulfills that office and that role ultimately. And this is, not, this is not just out of Stephen's own head. This is really coming out of Jesus' own teaching. 
Jesus in John 5, 45 and 4, through 47, specifically gets to this issue with these people as well, with these Pharisees he confronts. And look at, look at what he says in John 5, 45, Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, but there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. You hear what Jesus is saying to the same, very same people Stephen's talking to? At least some of them would have been the ones Jesus was talking to. The council of elders, the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to accuse you before the Father, but I know somebody who will, and his name is Moses, and he's the guy that you guys are putting your hope in. And then, he, then this is where Jesus slam dunks and just says, listen, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me but you do not believe his writings. So how will you believe my words? Jesus is making this point to them that if you actually believed in Moses the way you say you do, then you would believe in me because I'm the one that he wrote about. I'm the one who Moses was talking about. And here Stephen is picking up on that again. Again, it's just this, this whole passage seems like he's just reciting Old Testament stories that all these guys would have known. But we got to understand he's picking out specific things because these are the sacred cows they're holding to. That's keeping them from Jesus. Okay, third, third misplaced hope is the temple. Shorter section here, 44 through 50 says this, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directing, uh, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Now let's stop there for a second so I can clarify what's being talked about. The tent of witness is a reference to the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was the temporary temple that they would set up. It was, a, it was like a giant tent that they would camp somewhere in the wilderness for these 40 years. Wherever they would camp, they would set up the tabernacle. They built the tabernacle according to God's instructions. They would put this up and that tabernacle, that tent of witness was there to, sh- to demonstrate and display that God is among us. He is here. His presence is in the middle of our camp. Okay, so that's what's happening there. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So they had the tabernacle. They brought it into the promised land with them. They kept that thing in operation until the days of King David. Verse 46 David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So David wanted to build the temple. God told him, no, you're a man of bloodshed. I'm going to give it to your son to do this for me. And David spent the last years of his life basically bringing all the materials that were needed together And when Solomon became king, God uh, allowed Solomon to build this temple, this permanent structure, this actual house, this building, not a tent, but a building made from stone and, and gold and all these beautiful ornaments. And he allowed Solomon to build it. 
But look at where Stephen goes in verse 48 through 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, here he quotes from Isaiah, the prophet, the guy who they probably would have seen as the most important prophet. Isaiah 66 verse 1. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? So Stephen quotes from Isaiah to prove the point that is blatantly obvious here. This isn't hard to get to. The temple is not the thing. The temple is not the thing. And this was a massive point that they missed. The temple was a shadow that represented the presence of God to his people. But Jesus is the actual presence of God among his people. They missed this. And so Stephen is pointing it out to them. He's saying, listen, Solomon built this beautiful temple and yet, and actually the temple Solomon built was destroyed by the Babylonians, right? We did this in Ezra and Nehemiah last year when we went through this. They had to rebuild the temple and it was a much lesser impressive temple than Solomon's. And that's why the old men were weeping in in Ezra and Nehemiah because it was like, this is pathetic compared to what it was. But the temple that they, they had was still an impress, impressive structure. The, the temple I think that they had in these days was Herod's temple even. And so here you have this temple that has been outsized, made this big deal. And Stephen's going, it's not the thing that we need to see. Jesus is. This is where John the apostle, when he writes in John 1, 1 uh, 14, he says that the word became flesh that the eternal God becomes a human and dwelt among us. That phrase dwelt among us is, a, is very related in the original language to, uh, to being translated as tabernacled among us. That Jesus is actually the presence of God and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the temple that we go to to be with God not this physical building that they were hoping in. In fact, Jesus teaches that as well in Matthew 24, that all of this is going to be turned upside down and destroyed. And it was. In AD 70, God destroyed the temple that these men were having idolatrous beliefs around. God dealt with that temple. And I think he did it as a grace to help us understand we go to God through a person named Jesus Christ, not through a place. They missed the point. And Stephen is pointing it out to them. And, and now as we get into verse 51 through 53, it gets really serious. Stephen says some things that are pretty, pretty well, very true, but also pretty harsh. Look at what he says. You stiff-necked people. That's an Old Testament image. The, the Old Testament people of Israel were called stiff-necked people in the wilderness, uh, very often in the wilderness. The idea, the, this, this idiom that it's being translated as stiff-necked uh, could be translated just as easily as stubborn cows. That's what it is. It's this, you're this stubborn cow. 
And that the first time stiff-necked is used is at the, the point where they make a golden calf in the wilderness. So it's not like it's unrelated, right? He's like, you're just as dumb as that cow you built. That's what, that's what they're saying. So now Stephen calls the people in this, gr- this group of people, the people that he's speaking to, the elders of Israel, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets, I lo- this is really wild and amazing actually, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He's already gone through how they persecuted Moses. And then you can go beyond Moses and go, yeah, Jeremiah, yeah, Isaiah, yeah, right, Ezekiel, yeah. They were all, pro- they were all persecuted by their forefathers. So which of your father, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So what is Stephen saying to them? This is pretty, pretty wild. He's, he's standing before this group of people who, could, who literally have life and death over him in their hands and is saying, you know what, all of our fathers, they persecuted every prophet. Name me a prophet they didn't persecute. But they were persecuting people talking about the coming Messiah and you were the one who actually killed the Messiah. He's slam dunking on these people. And he's going, this is, this is the reality. You, you did this. You received the law, but you didn't keep the law. Wow. Okay, so how do you think this is going to go? <laughs> how do you think this, this is, this is maybe not the most tactful way to go about this, but it was true and they needed to hear it. And this, this doesn't go well. So look at verse 54. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. This is crazy. Stephen is telling these guys, I see Jesus. He's, he's standing above us. He's, uh, he's standing over, over us. You guys need to get with this picture. You guys need to see Jesus too. And instead of humbly receiving the gospel message, these men literally stop their ears. They plug their ears and scream like a three-year-old who doesn't want to listen to their parents. They scream and they stop their ears and they rush together at him. And then they cast him out of the city, verse 58, and they stoned him. They threw stones at him until he was dead. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young men named of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, "Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. So Stephen is ultimately killed by this angry mob who are supposed to be the leaders of Israel. Does this remind us of anybody else, right? Of course it does. It reminds us of Jesus. Even in his death, Stephen resembles Jesus. And if the Christian life is about looking like Jesus, it should lo- we should look like him through life and death. And we're seeing Stephen as a model of this. He, he was killed by an angry mob just as Jesus was. In fact, the very same men who killed Jesus kill Stephen. And all through this, Stephen is calm as Jesus was. He even submits his spirit to God as Jesus did on the cross. He then, as he's dying, as he's saying his final words, he's asking for the forgiveness of his murderers as Jesus did. Stephen, at the beginning of this passage, is described as a man full of grace. And there it is. That's what we're talking about. That even in his dying moments, his heart's concern, his greatest concern was for the forgiveness of these men who were killing him. He, he's not slam dunking them out of, out of a, a, I gotcha moment or I'm gonna crush you or I, I wanna just make you look like fools. He's telling them the things he's telling them so that they would repent and turn to Jesus. And they don't at least not in this moment. There is a man we meet in this story who does come to Jesus, a guy named Saul, which we'll learn more about in the next chapter or two. But as we wrap this up today, uh, because we got to wrap it up, um, where do we put our hope? That's the question that Stephen brings out, right? The question that Stephen raises is where does our hope Where is our hope found? Is it in the land or some land? Is it Israel or America or any other piece of dirt that we stand on? No. Is it in Moses? No. Is it in some structure or building or temple? No. It must be in Jesus, being God who became man and died for our sins. And, and here's the one thing I, that I was convicted on as I read this is I found myself so quickly drawn to resonating with the Stephen character. Going, oh yeah, Stephen, that's, that's gotta be me, right? I gotta be there. But, but what, I, what I realized is this, that that is just complete self-righteousness. <laughs> because if it wasn't for the righteousness of Jesus, given to me by faith, by, through, through grace, by faith. If, if that wasn't true, I wouldn't be the Stephen character. You wouldn't be Stephen either. Where would we be? We'd be in the mob of angry people killing him. We got to deal with that. We've got to recognize that it is not in our righteousness that we cling to. It is not in our selfish, self-centered righteousness It is in the righteousness of Christ. That's where we find our hope. Without Jesus changing our lives from the inside out, where would we be? We are, in in a large sense, responsible for the death of Christ. 
It was our sin that put him on that cross. And until we realize that and deal with that and go, God, I put you into that place. I crucified you. You died for my sins. Until we do that, we are never going to grow up into him who is the head. We will always believe firmly that we are just fine on our own. But when we realize our need, our brokenness, our lostness, and that Jesus is the one who heals and restores and finds us, when we get there, we realize that we have been given his righteousness, a righteousness not my own, but his, given to me. That's where we put our hope. And it is awesome and amazing and gracious of him to do that, that he would love us so well. Stephen is a wonderful example of a man that in that moment was like Jesus. But if it wasn't for the grace of God working in him, he would not have been that man. And you and I would never be the people that we're called to be without grace. So let's lean into Christ for grace today as we do every day. Trust him and love him. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel. As Stephen reminds us, we are not finding our hope and cannot find our hope in external things that are not from you and in you, that it is only you that bring us to what we, uh, what we ought to be. Would you help us to be reminded of that fact today? Would you help us as we sing songs together as a congregation? And, and would you help us as we partake of the Lord's Supper and, and eat the bread and drink the, the cup that you have given us to be reminded of these things? Would you draw our hearts away from self-righteousness into the righteousness of your son? Would you help us do that, God? We pray for your help that we would not cling to other things. We would only cling to you for our hope. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.